Hello, readers. Howard Bloom is a scientist, former publicist to some of the biggest bands and singers in the music industry, and an author. The book we're talking about today is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Howard, thank you for the time. How are you today? Great. At last, we get to meet. Good. Howard, what was your initial goal in writing Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me? Well, for years, friends had been begging me to write down my rock and roll adventures. I sat down with Todd Rundgren's former manager, who also managed Timothy Leary and worked with the Jefferson Airplane at a restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. And by the end of the lunch once, his jaw was dropping. And he said, these are the most amazing stories I've ever heard. You've got to write these down as a book. But my difficulty, Trey, is that I come from the world of science. I got involved in theoretical physics and microbiology at the age of 10. I was never allowed anywhere near popular music. That was the music of the kids who beat me up. (laughs) And when I was 12 years old, I realized that I had a ferocious scientific curiosity. And it was about the ecstatic experience, the experience where you're drawn out of yourself and you're cast into something larger and you lose control over yourself and something inside of you takes you over and dances you for a while. If you've ever danced at a club to disco music with strobes going and a few drinks in you or something like that, you've had that experience. And as a person whose whole life was in science, I wanted to use the tools of my science to do two things. One, to understand that astonishing experience. And the second thing was to experience it, because there's something called participant observer science. You can't really explain something if you haven't experienced it directly. So I ended up going in pursuit of all of this. I ended up going into a field I knew nothing about, popular culture, and I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry, and I worked with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss, Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, Joan Jett, Shaka Khan, all kinds of people like that. And it was an astonishing field expedition. It was like the great safaris at the end of 1800s when most of the animals were unknown. It was going out and bringing back these experiences alive and bringing them to people like Prince and Michael Jackson and Bob Marley, who didn't necessarily have words for what they had been going through for years. So I had the benefit of an astonishing experience, and I wanted to bring you back to that astonishing experience. But first, I left the music business in 1988, a long, long time ago. I went back to my science, and because I'd been so visible in the music industry, I had to reestablish my scientific credentials. And that was hard. Because people are not going to take you seriously once you've been a, quote, legend in the rock and roll business as a scientist. So by now, I have published in 12 different scientific disciplines. I've either published in peer-reviewed journals or I've given lectures at scholarly conferences in everything from quantum physics to evolutionary biology to governance of all things. And so I felt that at last I'd sufficiently established my scientific credentials that I could go back and do the book that people like my friend Eric Gardner at Over Lunch on Sunset Boulevard had been begging me to write. How did a girl in class lead to 12-year-old Howard Bloom learning a lesson from Albert Einstein that would fuel success throughout the rest of your life? Well, the kids didn't like me. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. My own parents didn't have time for me. I was a lost and bereft child. And one day in eighth grade, a girl 
turned her eyes in my direction. And Trey, that had never happened to me before. Then she did something else that had never happened to me before. She made eye contact. It was (laughs) electrifying. It had never happened in my life. And she said, I told my mother you understand the theory of relativity. Well, I'm 12 years old. The kids have saddled me with a nickname, the sickly scientist. It's the only thing I have to be proud of is my knowledge of science. And I couldn't confess to her that I didn't understand the theory of relativity. At that point, the reputation of the theory of relativity was that only seven people in the world could understand it. So as soon as school got out, I jumped on my bicycle. I drove the three miles to the library. The librarians literally knew me better than my mother did. I said, give me everything you've got in relativity. They threw one great big fat book at me and one tiny little skinny book. I started reading the big fat one at something like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was all equations, Trey. It was seven words of English on a page. (laughs) I have never understood equations in my life. But nonetheless, I've learned that if you put yourself through something that's extremely hard, if you get through all the way to the end, by the end, even though you don't think you've understood anything, on a gut level, you have understood something. But by 8 o'clock that night, I was only 50 pages into that book, so I reluctantly put down the big book because my mom was going to put me to bed at 10 o'clock, and if I didn't understand the theory of relativity by 10 o'clock that night, I was going to be seriously humiliated the next day in class, and I picked up the little skinny book, which was written all by Albert Einstein himself. And I don't know if you've ever had this kind of experience, but sometimes it feels as if the author is reaching out through the pages of the book, grabbing you by the lapels, putting his nose up to yours, And in this case, Albert Einstein, through the introduction he wrote to that book, said this, Schmuck, listen up. You want to be a genius? It is not enough to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then to be able to explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So I had been given my marching orders for the rest of my life. Schmuck, you want to be so smart, you think you can be an original scientific thinker? You had better learn how to write, and not just to write any old way. Be able to write so clearly and so deliciously that you can hold a person who doesn't think he's interested in the kind of subject matter you're talking about to the page and get him to understand every single word. And I have been on the quest of being the finest, most delicious writer I can possibly be, ever since the age of 12, thanks to those words of Albert Einstein. I loved that lesson when I read through it the first time in this book, and you actually followed through on becoming a better writer by majoring in English Lit at NYU. The summer after your freshman year, you landed a writing job with the Boy Scouts of America at their New Brunswick headquarters. What was your first assignment with them? Oh, my God, Trey. First of all, the idea that I should be working for the Boy Scouts of America at all was ludicrous because I'd been thrown out of the Boy Scouts at the age of 11 for incompetence at Morse code. And if they hadn't thrown me out for incompetence at Morse code, they could have thrown me out for incompetence at not time. I mean, I was just generally all around incompetent. If there was such a thing as the opposite of a merit badge, a demerit badge, I would have had every demerit badge there was. So the Boy Scouts gave me a job writing for them, and the first writing job they gave me was they threw me a copy of the Boy Scout handbook, and they said, look up the chapter on masturbation, we want you to rewrite it. And they didn't even give me a single guideline, not a single 
stitch of information on what direction they wanted me to things to, they wanted things to go. I just had to read it. It must have been written in 1936. It said that if you masturbated, a three-foot-long black hair would come out of your left hand, that your eyeballs would fall out, all kinds of astonishing things. So I simply said, this is the Boy Scouts. It's their handbook. They are going to have to tell you somehow not to masturbate. So I came up with a whole different, more 1960s-attuned reason for not masturbating, and that is you'll feel guilty. And apparently they liked that chapter so much that then they put me to work on their stalking and tracking handbook, the entire handbook, their entire handbook on camouflage, and then an entire booklet called 10 Steps to Organize a Boy Scout Troop, which gave you step-by-step instructions on how to establish a Boy Scout troop in some poor town somewhere that had never had a Boy Scout troop in its life. And that's despite the fact that I cannot find my way into the woods, much less (laughs) out of the woods. But I cared. I wanted any kid who read that stalking and tracking handbook to get so good at it that he could sneak up on a bunny rabbit and be rubbing noses with it by the time the rabbit realized he was there. And I learned a basic lesson. Care about your audience, love your audience, and it doesn't matter what audience there is. With sufficient research skills, you can write for it and do something that will change other people's lives. Was editing Circus Magazine starting in 1971 your first real indoctrination into rock and roll? Yes, I'd had no previous experience. Well, actually, okay, let me answer that a little differently. By that time, 1971, Cloud Studio, where we'd started making something like $58 a week per person, I mean, really starvation wages, was a major force. I was on the cover of Art Direction Magazine. I'd invented a new animation technique for NBC TV and all kinds of things like that. And I had acquired a client. It was ABC. ABC owned seven FM stations. And ABC was about to try something really risky. There was a new magazine format that came out of Bard College, a super avant-garde college north of New York City someplace. And this giant operation owning seven of the country's leading FM stations was about to take a chance and put up its entire seven stations and base them in the future on this new format, this new unproven format. And they hired my art studio and me to do all of the artwork for this radical revolution in radio. The new form of radio is sometimes called rock radio. It's sometimes called album radio. It's sometimes called progressive radio. And it was brand new. So I used to have to walk into ABC and there'd be rock and roll playing. Now, in those days, 1970, 1971, rock and roll was, if you can believe this, James Taylor and Carol King. Hmm. And I was so good at being able to tell the difference between them that I could tell which one was James and which one was Carol on the basis of sex. (laughs) That's all I could tell. I knew nothing about this stuff. And then one day, the head of promotions who took me under her wing and really was very kind to me and was doing her best to school me on this stuff I knew nothing about, rock and roll music, said, well, I've got tickets. We're having a concert in Studio B. Would you like to come? And I said, sure. This whole new popular music or rock and roll music thing was new to me. I took the best of my artists with me. We went to the concert. There was a piano player who took to the stage. And as soon as he took to the stage and clanked out his first couple of chords, my artist started embarrassing the hell out of me. 
he started jumping up to his feet and yelling and screaming and whistling and doing all kinds of outlandish things. And I shriveled up to the size of a baseball in the hope that nobody would realize he was with me. And when the concert was over, they put it out as a record. It was Elton John. It took me years to realize in the process of not only studying the ecstatic experience, but experiencing the ecstatic experience to the best of my ability, without drugs, by the way, without even coffee, that my artist had made that concert because he had fed back to Elton John the kind of energy that's absolutely elemental to a, a performer on stage. And if you get that kind of exquisite energy from the audience, it throws you into a whole new sphere of energy. And you suddenly go into the ecstatic experience. And something bigger than you are, something inside of you, I call it the gods inside, takes you over and manipulates you like a puppet on a string. And that's when an artist has his most exquisite, extraordinary performances. When he's got an out-of-body experience, when he's looking down from the ceiling, when he's seeing himself being manipulated by a force far bigger than he is, and when he sees a feedback loop that goes through the audience, picks up the energy of the audience, throws it to the energy through the audience's eyes and faces into the artist himself, takes that in like it's an energy going into a big empty pipe, utterly transmogrifying it somewhere around the head and shooting that energy back out to the audience again. That's a kind of, kind of reverberatory loop of ecstatic experience that makes rock and roll or any form of performance what it is. It's an ecstatic performance for the audience. It's an ecstatic performance for the performer. And those two experiences, the experience of the performer and the experience of the audience, are vitally linked and become one. It's an astonishing thing. And Peter Bramley, my artist, with all of his hideously embarrassing behavior, had helped make that concert what it was. And you'll hear that concert being played today on the radio. In all of your experience around these performers, did you ever see or note a common way that that person would connect with the source of inner passion that was buried so deep inside him or her? To the very opposite. Different performers connected in very, very different ways. John Mellencamp is one of the best performers I've ever seen in my life. If you've never seen him and you ever got the opportunity to, I can't tell what he's like now. He's probably about 60 years old, but... He was astonishing. He, Prince, Michael Jackson, Billy Idol, and Joan Jett, among my performers, were electrifying. And for John, the experience that I've just described to you, the experience of being yanked out of your own body and replaced by forces bigger than you are, was jolting. It was a horrible experience. It was a nightmare for him. So he never had anybody around him when he was psyching himself up to go on stage. And then there's stage fright. You're going in front of an audience of anywhere from 700 people to 70,000 people, and you get intimidated. So John stayed very, very much alone, as did most of my performers, when he was psyching up to go on that stage and take on stage fright and being puppeteered by something bigger than himself all at once. Michael Jackson, on the other hand, would have his manager secretly find two kids dying of cancer in the town where he was playing and bring those two kids to the backstage area into Michael's dressing room. And Michael would spend his last 45 minutes psyching himself up with the very opposite of the kind of isolation and privacy that John Mellencamp would seek. 
Instead, he was with these two kids. And these two kids let him know through their eyes and their level of excitement how much they loved him, how important he was to them. And that's what psyched Michael to go on stage. So there's no one magic formula for getting yourself ready for that radical transition that takes place when you step from behind the curtains into the limelight and all of a sudden everything you are and everything in your life changes dramatically for the next 70 minutes. You just said something that you write about in this book that the three most amazing stage performers you worked with were Michael Jackson, Prince, and John Cougar Mellencamp. I get the first two, but what was it that made John Cougar Mellencamp so special on stage? Talk about somebody being jerked around like a puppet on strings in the grip of something larger than himself. He ran around the stage. He jumped on the amplifiers. He moved back and forth. Every concert was different from every other concert but you felt he was in the grip of an energy that went far beyond the energy of normal mortals. He was jaw-droppingly astonishing. The press hated him. And I love to take on cases where the press hates somebody that's got tremendous musical validity. And for three years, I took press people to lunch and explained to them John's story and tried to get serious attention from them and couldn't because it was fashionable to despise John Cougar Mellencamp. And then one day we did a concert at Radio City Music Hall. And John was himself on stage, and you could not help but be caught up in what he was. He was electrifying on stage. And when it was all over, there was a reception at a lower level in Radio City Music Hall. All the walls were covered in red velvet and black velvet. It was a stunning room. And every one of the journalists that I had taken to lunch during the previous three years, every one of those journalists who had remained utterly skeptical about John Mellencamp walked up to me, grabbed me by my biceps with each of his hands and put his nose almost up to mine and said, you were right, you were right, you were right. John Mellencamp was electrified, and as a consequence, he was electrifying. Around 1983, after you had helped John Cougar Mellencamp reach the big time, Heinz Ketchup offered him more than a million bucks to use Hurt So Good in an ad campaign. He called you for advice on that. What was your response? I said, John, you have two choices. In 15 years, if you want to be clipping coupons on the bonds that you've bought, and that's the way you want to make your money, then accept the million, it was $1.25 million, then accept the million and a quarter dollars. On the other hand, if you want to go on stage still, if you want to be making music for your audience, if you still want to feel that response from the audience, then you have to turn it down. And I explained that you have to turn it down because here's who you are. You are for teenagers, for 16-year-old boys, 17-year-old boys, 18-year-old boys, and even for girls. You are like the prophet who stands outside of gates of the city, raising his fist in the air and saying, even though you reject me, I have a right to be. I have a right to exist. I have my own strength, power, and dignity. And if you accept that ad, you are no longer outside the gates of the city, speaking on behalf of all those others who are locked out with you. You are one of the forces within that city against whom you raise your fist. You lose your right to speak on behalf of those who follow you. And John said, of those two, I want to be on stage. I still want to be making my music. 
So I said, then you have to turn down the catcher pad. And the result was that John Mellencamp lost his manager, Billy Gaff, who was also Rod Stewart's manager. Apparently, Billy Gaff just couldn't stomach that loss. But, you know, this is what rock and rollers were all about in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They were that raised fist against the establishment. And why did they represent teenage boys, 16 and 17 and 18 years old, so well? Because we all, at the age of 12 or so, when we go into puberty, we all throw ourselves out of our family without knowing it. Biology has set us up to smell bad to our family at the age of 13, and for our family to smell bad to us, biology starts ejecting us from our home. And then we are locked out of the adult establishment, and we need to struggle hard and rebel in order to establish our place in that new aspect of life that we have to become a part of, the adult world, the adult community. And rock and roll in those days was a vital part of that process of what's called, in scientific terms, individuation, setting yourself apart and gaining a new identity for yourself. I have no doubt that you gave John Cougar Mellencamp the right advice back in 1983, but considering how much the endorsement landscape has changed in 2020, Howard, really to an obnoxious degree, everyone seems to be shilling something nowadays. Has your opinion changed on the idea of selling out to a corporate sponsorship, especially if it's somebody like that? It hasn't changed at all, not a bit, because of exactly what you said. Now it is totally accepted that every single artist who gets any degree of notoriety, of fame, should immediately sell out and cash in. And that's wrong. I've seen people like Ben Harper, whose music is absolutely exquisite. And a friend of mine, Tom Silverman, who's the founder of Tommy Boy Records, Mm. used to run something called the New Music Seminar every year. And someone I had known for years in the business was up on stage during one of these New Music Seminar events where I'd been invited as a special guest and was talking about all of the deals he landed, ginger ale ads and things like that, for Ben Harper. Well, Ben Harper's one of the most heartfelt singers you will ever hear in your life. He speaks to and from the human soul. And I got up and said, what you're doing is criminal. You are taking one of the finest, most authentic artists that I've seen in my recent lifetime, and you are turning him into a piece of plastic? I'm sorry. You do not have a right to do that kind of thing. Well, I'm a voice in the wilderness. I'm not even in the wilderness anymore. I've been back in my science since 1988. And I wish I could go back into the music industry. You know, I've gone beyond that in many ways, but I wish I could go back and preach soul. Because if you came to me and you said you wanted to be my artist, I would say to you, look, if you expect me to fashion an artificial mask for you and call it your image and tell you that on the basis of that image I will make you a star, I'm going to get you an appointment within two hours with my best competitor. If you're going to work with me, you have to understand something basic. The music business is not about exchanges of pieces of plastic like vinyl. It is not about the exchange of downloads. It is not even about the exchange of money. It is a direct exchange of human souls. And if you want to work with me and you're willing to accept that, I will work with you. But otherwise, I'm simply not interested. Um, that soul exchange that is so vital to music and so vital to people who dedicate their entire lives to music, knowing that their odds are 100,000 to one against getting anywhere, people like Prince and John Mellencamp and Michael Jackson, 
that exchange, that soul exchange, is so important. It's one of the most important things we have in our lives. And to cheapen it and destroy its authenticity with ginger ale ads. I mean, Maroon 5, a great band, but they sold out to the nth degree. As a consequence, they don't stand for anything greater than their latest hit. Not a thing. That's unacceptable. If we don't have musicians to look up to, to represent the interests of our souls, then who is going to speak on behalf of our soul for us? Hell yes, Howard. Great answer there. And one of the many reasons that I enjoyed reading this book is because you were sprinkling these historical footnotes throughout the pages. That includes you explaining how the musical style jazz got its name. So how did jazz end up getting called jazz? And also, how did one of the great jazz musicians of all time, Jelly Roll Morton, end up with the nickname Jelly Roll? Well, we're going into territory that's not allowed on PG radio here. But there was a red light district, a whorehouse district, in New Orleans. Some of it catered to the normal people, ahoy polloi, and some of it catered to the richest and most prestigious people in the city. And those rich prestige houses of prostitution, houses of ill repute, had to give as much saturated, high-level, but boundary-flaunting, convention-flaunting arts to its patrons because these were the mayors, these were the city councilmen. And at one point, one of those houses of prostitution hired about a 19-year-old kid. His last name was Morton. He was a piano player. And he basically invented a whole new musical form, a musical form in which syncopation was used in a way that no one had ever heard before. And because the music was born in the red light district, was born in a house of prostitution, a house where I'm sure the laundresses had a problem that they never got to talk about with the general public, and that is washing this crusty white stuff off the sheets, <laughs> getting it completely off. It's not easy. That's called sperm. And that sperm in the argo of the time, in the slang of the time, that sperm was called jizz. So the music, because of its origins, was named jazz, which is just a slight variation on jizz. It means sperm. And the 19-year-old piano player, his first name also came from the fact that he got his start in a whorehouse. His first name was Jelly Roll, his nickname. Do you know what Jelly Roll means? No. Jelly Roll is, um, we're getting triple X rated here, but when you part a woman's thighs around your cheeks and you zero in with your tongue on her most private zone and you stick your tongue into her, the taste you taste is sometimes sweet as sweet can be jelly roll was slang for that taste that you get with your tongue between a woman's labia so imagine what it must have been like in 1917 when that music finally made it up to new york city and when your parents learned that you were about to go to Reiserbacher's cafe to see the first jazz performance in New York City. A music named after human sperm? This is the tale in the Victorian times, for God's sakes. <laughs> and a pianist named after oral sex? Cunnilingus, as it's known in Latin? Parents must have gone apoplectic. But one of the purposes of music, popular music, is to drive parents apoplectic because you're going through the process of individuation. And you need to demonstrate how separate your identity is from the identity of your parents. 
and you do it by rebelling. You did it by rebelling in 1917 with a music named after sperm, with jazz, and you did it in the 1960s with the Jefferson Airplane, and you did it in the 1970s and 1980s with the artists that I represented, people like John Mellencamp, Billy Idol, and Joan Jett. Throughout history, adults have been wrongly claiming that something is about to destroy our youth. What was the philosopher Plato trying to save our children from? In Plato's time, to be a good and well-educated Greek, you had to memorize two books, the Iliad and the Odyssey. You had to know every single word from beginning to end of those books. And all of a sudden, a new technology came along that made it unnecessary to memorize these things. And Plato was shocked. He said the rigor of the Greek mind is based on this basic educational exercise of memorizing two entire books. And this new technology is going to do away with the minds of our kids. It's going to destroy them. It's going to flatten them. It's going to shallow them. They'll no longer be intelligent. And the new technology was writing. It was books. And little did Plato realize that with books, instead of just knowing two books in your entire lifetime, you might be able to read 20 books in your entire lifetime. Or if you became a scholar at the Library of Alexandria in Egypt, where there were between 10,000 and 100,000 books, you might even be able to read hundreds and hundreds of books in your lifetime. Plato looked backwards and was afraid for the minds of his kids. And he was wrong. Today we make kids read to make them educated, not to make them stupid. It was Plato who was stupid. But parents have been horrified by the new technologies of their children ever since Plato 2,500 years ago. And in every generation, when they make these incredible accusations, Facebook is going to dumb down the minds of kids, for example. They're wrong. They're dead wrong. These new technologies are always just the first fringes of brand new frontiers in which the minds of kids are going to expand in ways that their grandparents could not have imagined. We've uh, ended out on a very fascinating avenue, but I'm going to steer things back to the music publicity career that you did such a great job of writing in this book. You had a basic grading formula for musicians at Circus Magazine that determined the content of each issue, and it was based on a regular survey completed by readers. Alice Cooper was their favorite artist by a wide margin, meaning that every issue had a certain amount of material dedicated to Alice. You were eventually able to gain personal insight into this unique rock star. So my question for you, Howard, is how did Alice Cooper become Alice Cooper? Alice Cooper became Alice Cooper one day when he was with a neighbor. I believe in his, some people have claimed this happened in L.A., but I believe it was in his Arizona kitchen. And the neighbor was into Ouija boards. And Alice Cooper was a lost kid, very much like I had been a lost kid. He had a big nose. He was skinny. His mom sent him to school every day dressed in a suit and tie. He was always the teacher's pet because he was very bright. Well, kids hate another kid who shows up perfectly dressed in a suit and tie. They hate the kid who is the teacher's pet. So poor Alice was hated. And so one day he was in his kitchen with the next-door neighbor with the Ouija board, and the next-door neighbor with the Ouija board said, I am in contact with a 16th-century witch who is burned at the stake. She says that you are her modern incarnation, and her name is Alice Cooper. Well, that touched a nerve in Alice. There was something in this kid whose name up to that time had been Vincent Fernier, 
that was more Alice Cooper than it was Vincent Fournier. That name tapped an energy of a kind that Alice had never been in touch with before. And when he went on stage, he went on stage in mascara and a dress. When he went on stage in this incarnation for his first talent show, all of a sudden the kids who beaten him up all his life, the football players and the basketball players, streamed down to the foot of the stage when his performance was over and begged him to let them be parts of his band. And they all became millionaires as part of Alice's band, the kids who used to beat him up. Because the Alice Cooper in Alice Cooper was far more real than the Vincent Fernier in Alice Cooper. And that's what I call tapping the gods inside. We all have gods inside of us. We all have souls that could come alive in ways that shove our normal conscious self aside and have infinitely more energy than we ever imagined we could have before. And music is about finding the gods inside and sharing those gods with your fellow human beings to bring out the gods inside of them. You spent some time working in music at Gulf and Western, one of the largest media distribution conglomerates in the world at the time. You described plenty of great stories from that experience, including the tale of Bill Chinook. Who is he, and why is he an example of would-be stars needing role models? Bill Chinook was a guitarist, and he was the fastest guitarist you've ever seen in your life. He wasn't a good songwriter, he wasn't a good singer, but man, when he got his hands on that guitar, astonishing things happened. So Bill Chenick told me a story one day. He was playing at a little club in New Jersey, and there was a little old man sitting in the back of the audience through the entire show. And then when everybody else left, the little old man was still there and came up to the foot of the stage and said, son, how the hell did you do that? Meaning, how did you blizzard so many notes in so few seconds um, and manage to keep your fingers moving in the right direction? And Bill said, well, sir, when I was a kid, I was really into Les Paul. So I sat there for years listening to Les Paul records and trying to do what Les Paul had done on the guitar. And I finally managed to do it. And the little old man said, son, I am Les Paul. Don't you realize I invented multi-tracking? In other words, there were eight Les Pauls in order to achieve the blizzard of notes that Les Paul's records seemed to demonstrate. Bill Chinnick had sat down and taught himself to do the impossible, to play like eight Les Pauls playing simultaneously. So the little old man said, look, come over to my house. Let's go down to my den together. Can you do that all over again? I want to see you do it. And Bill did. Now, the lesson for that is, you know from reading this book, that spending time with and connecting with Michael Jackson was one of the most astonishing experiences of my life. He was so far beyond any mortal I had ever seen or imagined in his capacity for wonder awe, and surprise, that it stunned me. It just stunned me. And I want to get across in this book just how astonishing Michael Jackson was so that I can leave you the real Michael Jackson as the kind of legacy that Les Paul left in his records to Bill Chinnick. Because those things that were impossible, that Michael Jackson achieved, for those who read about what Michael Jackson achieved in the realm of awe, wonder, and curiosity... We'll start from that point and build from there. 
You took over publicity for ZZ Top in the mid-1970s. They were popular, but not at all respected nationally. Considering your goal with the new client was finding the story worth telling, how did you find that story with ZZ Top, and what was that story? Well, it took six months to find it, Trey. I hadn't yet perfected the art of what I call secular shamanism, which is sitting a person down for an interview for an entire day and finding the core stories that explain the birth of the artist's passions. So I was six months into the case, and I got a call saying that there's this guy who interviewed ZZ Top, and he's got a story, and you should hear it. And the story was this. Billy Gibbons had a friend who was a rancher. And on the ranch, there was an elderly black man who was an absolute wizard at welding. And he welded using this stuff called sucker gauge steel, which is the thin but extremely flexible and extremely strong steel that is used to connect the top of a windmill to the pump down below the ground. So Billy and his friend went to this guy and said, we want you to build the following. We want you to build a great big steel web ball about four feet high and four feet wide. We want you to weld in a bucket seat with a safety harness. The man made exactly what they said. They would put this huge ball, they called it the Master of Sparks, on the back of a truck. They would take the truck out to Jackrabbit Road when it was empty at night. They would get the truck up to full speed, which was around 50 miles an hour. And then they would pull a rope on the driver's side of the truck, and all of a sudden, the tailgate would open, and this giant ball with one of these kids in it would come out bouncing onto the road at 50 miles an hour, sending up a rooster tail of sparks that was higher than the trees on either side of the road. And sometimes that bouncing steel ball, traveling at this incredible speed, would bounce off the highway and hit a barbed wire fence and just roll up half a mile of barbed wire. It would make it a little hard for the kid inside to get out. So that story was one thing that finally began to give me a hook. And then one night we were sitting at the top story of a hotel, all three guys and myself, and they started explaining something. You have to remember that in those days, Texans felt brutally ashamed of their culture. They would not confess that they were from Texas in polite company. Janice Joplin pretended she was from San Francisco. She was not. She was from Port Arthur, Texas. Johnny and Edgar Winter pretended they were from Connecticut. They were not. They were from Beaumont, Texas. It was a shame to be a Texan. And so I'm sitting there in a room with these three Texans, Billy Gibbons, Frank Beard, and why am I forgetting the name of the other guy? He's wonderful. But at any rate, they were sitting around and they started explaining to me, look, if you took a chainsaw and you cut along the Texas border and cut it off from the remaining United States, and you set it adrift in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, it would have the sixth biggest economy in the world. Texas, you guys who are from the rest of the United States, you grew up with stories about George Washington and Hamilton and Lincoln. We do not. We have our own founding father, Sam Houston, which means that our history books and the history we grew up with is completely foreign history to yours. They were confessing that Texas had its own unique culture and Texas, and it was time for Texans to be respected. So they put together a tour called Taking Texas to the World. And we had a buffalo, a longhorn steer, 
three rattlesnakes, and two turkey vultures traveling with us. And a 75-foot <laughs> wide stage, the shape of the state of Texas. And it was in the days of pride movements, gay pride, black pride. And this was a Texas pride movement. And, Trey, it literally changed the way Texans were perceived. All of a sudden, you didn't hide being Texan anymore. All of a sudden, you were proud of it. You were loud and proud, to use ZZ Top's words. So they took me down to the City Hall of Houston, which is a big construction building, and they had the mayor name me the ambassador of Texas culture to the world, which is a little strange because I'm a Jewish atheist from (laughs) Buffalo, New York, not from Texas. But it was an honor. It was an honor. And the same month I was named the spokesman for the gay community coming out of the closet with disco. Now, if the mayor of Houston had known I was about to be named the spokesman for the gay community, I'm not gay, didn't matter, she would have had a heart attack. It was during your time of writing about ZZ Top in this book that you sprinkle in another one of those historical footnotes. Who is Dr. John Brinkley? Dr. John Brinkley. Well, Dr. John Brinkley is one of the guys who discovered that there was some substance put out by male goat testicles. And Brinkley felt that if you could sew male goat testicles into a human being, and that human being was having problems getting it up in bed, that those problems would cease. (laughs) Now, the magic ingredient in goat testicles is what we call today testosterone. So John Brinkley got a radio station, and he used it to advertise his services, sewing goat testicles into your body. And eventually, in Kansas, where he started this, the medical authorities decided that this was really ripping people off, that it wasn't legitimate science, it wasn't legitimate medicine. They took away his radio license, and they took away his ability to do surgeries. So the doctor went down to Mexico, where they didn't care what he did, and bought himself a radio station. And there were no limitations on the size of the signal you can have on a radio station in North America so that the station in Cleveland doesn't eradicate the signal of the stations in Toronto and New York City and Pittsburgh. But there are no such limitations in Texas. So he built the biggest antenna and the highest-powered radio transmitter you have ever heard of in your life. And he couldn't do all go lands all the time advertising except, you know, five times or six times an hour. He had to fill in the rest of the time with something, so he filled it in with music. And he hired this Brooklyn kid named Bob Smith, and Bob Smith changed his name to Wolfman Jack and started playing what were called race records in those days, which means black records that black artists made for black audiences that weren't really intended for white audiences. Well, two people at least picked up on these race records. A bunch of kids in England picked up on those records and started buying them at incredible amounts. Among those kids was a guy named Jagger, a guy named McCartney, and a guy named Lennon. And down in Texas, Billy Gibbons wasn't buying the records, He had this newfangled gadget called a transistor radio. It was about twice the size of your fist. And he would keep it under his pillow at night when his parents didn't know what he was doing and would listen to these race records being played by Wolfman Jack, the former Bob Smith from Brooklyn, coming across from the outlaw radio station on the other side of the Texas border that had been built to advertise all goat glands all the time. 
that's how Billy got his musical start. How are you responsible for reopening the historic Apollo Theater in Harlem in the late 1970s? Well, the Apollo Theater had been owned by two Jewish guys. They had started the place, and that was during Harlem's better days, meaning that black culture was there, and it was vibrant. It was producing radically new cultural gifts to the world. And he was featuring the artists that were giving these gifts to the world, that these two brothers were. But eventually, they couldn't figure out a way to make a living off the place anymore, and they gave it up. So the Apollo, which is the Mecca, the absolute worldwide capital of black American culture was shuttered for two years. And those were two awful and painful years for the black community. Then I had a client named Ralph McDonald, who was the most astonishing percussionist of the 20th century. In any given week, he would be on two of the top five singles on the pop charts, and he would be on 10 of the top 20 albums on the jazz charts. And I got him in People magazine, and eventually a piece that he wrote would make it onto the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever. But Ralph said, look, I've got a project for you. A friend of mine is going to reopen the Apollo Theater. Reopen the Apollo Theater? Are you kidding me? What could possibly be more important in the popular cultural history of the United States of America than opening the Apollo Theater? So I threw myself into it with gusto, and it was a huge event. And the night of the event, everybody was wearing tuxedos except for me. (laughs) And Ralph, my client, Ralph McDonald, said, I want you to meet the guy who's been paying your bills. And he took me over to meet this six-foot-two-inch black man in a tuxedo who was so charming. He had such a welcoming, joyous smile that he was absolutely, totally engaging. He could warm your heart even on a day when your dog had died. And this man who'd been paying my bills was named Nicky Burns. And where did Nicky Burns make his money to reopen the Apollo Theater? Very simple. He had taken away the entire Harlem drug business from the mafia. Now, to take away the drug business in Harlem for the mafia, imagine how many dead men must have piled up with bullets somewhere in vital places like their brains (laughs) in order to allow that to happen. And here he was, one of the most charming-looking men in the world. I was astonished. You took over Al Green's publicity at the end of the 1970s. What was your first impression upon meeting him, and what sage piece of advice did he provide that day that has stayed with you throughout life? Well, a very tall, very gorgeous woman dressed in combat fatigues picked me up at the Memphis airport and drove me to a little three-story house with a lawn in the front and a lawn in the back and little strips of garden on the sides, a normal middle-class, possibly lower middle-class house, and walked me in through the kitchen, and there was Al Green, my new client, who at that point was worshipped by people as one of the greatest soul singers of all time. And Al immediately popped me in a car again. I hadn't even gotten my orientation yet. I was still dizzy from the airport, and Al was going to pop me in a car again, and he took me on a ride. He wanted to show me something. It was very important for him to show me something. Al had had an incident. A woman who was obsessed with him had moved in with him, and not entirely with Al's permission. These two people had only known each other in person for two days, and then she had insisted that he marry her. And they got into a fight about it, because one night he brought home another woman from the recording studio late at night. He'd made no commitment to her. It was she who was trying to push this commitment on him. So she threw hot grits. Um, all over him and burned a very good portion of his body in a very painful way. And then she was shot 
with a gun that Al kept around the house. So at first he was suspected of murder. Later, a suicide note would crop up. This woman was not really all there. She was having a problem with her mind. She was losing it. And she had shot herself. But the humiliation of the experience, with the humiliation experience, Al went back to his roots, which had been gospel music, and he bought a church and he became a reverend. So there I am in a car with Al Green on a way to I'm not quite sure where, and Al is reciting biblical quotes to me. And two of the biblical quotes that he recites in this deep tone of voice that give them a kind of holy aura, one of them was, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you can get what you need. Now, guess which part of the Bible that, that one comes from? The Bible of the Rolling Stones. Yes, you've got it. And the other one was, anything you conceive and believe you can achieve. That one was a stunner for me, an absolute stunner. Later, I would look it up, and it would turn out to come from a motivational book of the 1930s, a famous motivational book of the 1930s. So what counts here is not that these quotes did not come from the Bible. What counts is that these quotes were so right on about various aspects of life. And I've lived roughly seven lifetimes in the course of one lifetime so far. You know, I ran the leading commercial avant-garde art studio on the East Coast, the literary magazine that I edited won two National Academy of Poets prizes. I've been in the rock and roll business. I've been published in 12 different scientific fields. I've lived a lot of lives. And that principle of anything you conceive and believe you can achieve has definitely come in more than handy. It has been inspirational for me. The one word that's missing from it is you can achieve anything that you believe if you persist. If you just keep pushing through all the pain, you will come out on the other side. By the way, the place Al was trying to take me to was Elvis's mansion, which to Al Green was a mecca. We're talking about cultural, iconic places. This was also a mecca. You know, it was closed. You couldn't see it. All I could see was a big iron fence with spear tips at the top, eight feet above our head, and a lot of trees. I never got to see Elvis's mansion. But Al felt that he had done his duty and taken me to the holiest place in Memphis, Tennessee. It was Graceland before it had turned into a tourist shrine, correct? Yes, exactly. I mean, what happened... I would later, you know, after 1988, I would spend 15 years trapped in a bed by what's called myotrix encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. And for five of those years, I would be too weak to speak and too weak to have another person in the room with me. But once I got my voice back, I became friends with Priscilla Presley's common-law husband, Marco Garibaldi, with whom she had a son who at that point was 19 years old when Marco came and visited me in my bedroom. And Marco explained that when Elvis died, he had tremendous tax debts, absolutely overwhelming tax debts and overwhelming debts to the Planters Bank in Memphis. So Elvis's mansion was about to be taken and sold off to pay all the back taxes. And Priscilla Presley was on a plane with Steve Wynn, a private plane, and she called from the private plane and she said, don't sell the building. Hold on to it for a year. Give me a chance for a year. 
and I will show you that we can turn the building into a profitable venture and pay you all of your back taxes and pay off the planter's bank loans. And she did. And she did. And it's thanks to Priscilla Presley and her relentless persistence and her attitude of anything you conceive and believe you can achieve that we have Graceland, Elvis's mansion, today. You met Ozzy Osbourne in what you describe as a very masterpiece theater setting shortly after he infamously bit the head off of a bat in San Antonio. What did he have to say to you? Well, there was a man nodding out in front of a fireplace in the living room to which I'd been invited, and I hadn't been introduced to this guy, and he was sitting there in an English silk smoking jacket. And I went over, and he woke up when I approached him, and I introduced myself, and he said the following. He said, look, I was severely condemned for biting the head off a bat, and I really do regret killing any live creature at all. But when I got out of high school, the only job I could find was working at a slaughterhouse. And every day I watched as hundreds of animals, thousands of animals, paraded past me on the way to their death. And every night I went home crying. And what I've just done with that bat, I regretted. But one bat compared to hundreds of thousands of cattle over my lifetime, that's a major trade-off. So that's a little bit of the story of how Ozzy Osbourne got to be Ozzy Osbourne. Howard, as you said throughout this conversation, you're not a big guy. Did you ever have to get physical with someone in defending your client? Yes. Joan Jett had been turned down by 23 record companies, and it looked like she didn't stand a chance of getting back into the record industry. She had been part of the Runaways, and then she'd been not really a part of the American record industry. Her biggest-selling albums or the places where they sold the biggest were Japan and Europe. And Kenny Laguna, her manager, had put her together with Alan Grubman, who would eventually become the most powerful attorney in show business. And Alan and I had known each other when I established my office. It was in Alan's building, and Alan said, hey, they haven't finished painting your office yet. You need two weeks. Work in my office. And he literally gave me his own personal office to work in. So Alan had been very kind to me. But Alan had set up a relationship with Casablanca Records, which was extremely hot back then. And it became obvious when I had basically dictated the plan for building Joan's career. The plan was we would get her out on the road because she is astonishing on stage. And we would get her in front of audiences. And Kenny, her manager, would press up 350 copies of her record And we would send those records out, for example, to the two daily newspapers in Cleveland when she was about to play Cleveland, and thus we'd be able to get press. Without a record, the newspapers could not have written about Joan. It was simply against policy. And Kenny had done something that I hadn't dictated when dictating this tour strategy and helping carry it out. He had hired what's called a promotion man. A promotion man goes into record companies, meets with DJs, and persuades them to play the records that are on his priority list that week. Well, Casablanca Records had four priorities, and Kenny's promotion man had been extremely successful at getting Jones' record on radio stations, even though they came from an unknown record label, Blackheart Records, which we made for the purpose of all of this. 
And all of a sudden, now that Joan was on Casablanca Records, the Casablanca guys had their four priority records for the week. Joan's record was not one of them. So they would walk in knowing they only got a limited number of slots for Casablanca Records, and they would say to the DJs, take Joan Jett's record off the turntable. It's not on my priority list. Put the records on my priority list and the turntable instead. And Casablanca was killing Joan's career instead of building it. So one day, I went over to Alan Grubman's office. Kenny Laguna was over there. And I stood Alan Grubman up against the wall, and I was only six inches of distance from him. I hoped that I wasn't spitting in his face, but I was spitting angry. And I said, Alan, with my finger up against his chest, Alan, you will not let Casablanca Records fuck with this artist. You will not let Casablanca destroy her and take her as a tax write-off. And that conversation made a lot of difference. Alan was plastered up against the wall like a piece of bubble gum. And it's the only time I've ever put another human up against the wall or in any way came anywhere near physical violence with another human being. But I was not going to let Casablanca and Alan destroy Joan's career, period. Did it feel pretty good, Howard? I know you are a very peaceful person for the most part. You said that's the one time that you've ever done something like that. After the fact, were you walking around with a puffed-up chest for the rest of the day? Not a puffed-up chest, but look, when science became my religion, when I was 10 years old, and a book appeared in my lap in my big living room in Buffalo, New York, that said the first rule of science is this, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, my life has been dedicated to that proposition ever since. And when I know a basic truth, and I tell it to a bunch of people, and it changes their minds, and it changes the course of things. I feel good because I have spoken up on behalf of something that had to be spoken. And that's happened to me with Purple Rain from Prince. It happened to me with the career of a girl named Stephanie Mills at Gulf and Western. It's happened a number of times. And yes, it feels very good to know that you have done the right thing. Hell yes, it does. What was the criteria you used to pick out photos for Joan Jett for magazines and other publicity materials? It's back to a subject we've touched on in the days of the Boy Scouts. I knew that I was building an icon. I wasn't just building hit singles for the radio. So when Joan would do a photo session, they would send me 3,000 photos from the shoot. And I would go into a small windowless room in the dark, and I would put the light on up on the ceiling, and I would look up against the light at these slide sheets and examine each picture with a loop. It's a magnifying glass. And my criteria was this. I wanted you to fall in love with Joan Jett when you were 14 years old, maybe even 13. I wanted you to fall so in love with her that I wanted you to put posters of Joan Jett on your wall. And I wanted those to be posters you could masturbate to. Why? Because you were just discovering your sexuality at the age of 12, 13, 14, and 15. And when I got sick, I started working with VPRO TV in Holland. VPRO TV first did a three-hour special based on my first book, The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History, which is science combined with history to fashion new perceptual lenses to allow you to see everything inside of you and everything outside of you in ways you have never seen them before. And then they decided to do a one-hour special on my book, Global Brain, my second book. 
And I worked with their chief writer and researcher. And he became a partner with whom I had exhilarating experiences. He's a science person. And I told him the story of how I picked the photos for Joe and Jet. Now, he was about 20 years younger than I was. And he said, well, they worked. <laughs> he knew the pictures worked. <laughs> I love that. So I used to tell my artists, look, you don't just owe your audience your songs. You owe your audience your life. Why? What did I mean? Because if we succeeded, you were making music that came from your heart the way truths came out of mine when I pinned Alan Grubman up against the wall. You were making music that you couldn't help make. You couldn't stop coming out of you. You were making music that expressed your elemental truths. And I wanted you to become an icon upon whom kids grew the way the tomato plant grows on a trellis. I wanted you to become part of the structure of people's lives. That was your obligation to your audience. That's why you didn't just owe your audience your songs. You owe your audience your life. That's a beautiful analogy there. How did you eventually explain Joan Jett's success to Joan herself? Well, Joan and Kenny were staying at a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, very much like the bungalows that Art Ford had stayed in with Howard Hughes piping hot hamburger out in the crotch of a tree. And we were sitting on Joan's bed. And I said, look, in the 1950s, um, you got up in the morning, you went down to breakfast, your mom brought you breakfast, she was wearing a, a skirt, um, your dad came down to breakfast with his suit jacket slung over his shoulder and his briefcase in his hand, he put down his briefcase, he put his jacket on the back of his chair, he swallowed his Kellogg's cornflakes, and he went out to this mysterious place with his briefcase in his hand called the city. It was like another planet and you had no idea of what it was like. Meanwhile, your mom sent you off to school, and when you came home, she had milk and cookies for you. That was the Donna, what was called the Donna Reed model of femininity in the 1950s. Then the 1960s and the women's liberation movement came along, and the expectations for how women would lead their lives changed. And now your dad came down to breakfast with his suit jacket and his briefcase, put them down and ate breakfast. Your mom came down in her power suit and her briefcase sat down and ate breakfast and disappeared. So you saw a mother who was equally empowered with your dad. And so when you hit your teen years, 12 or 13 years old, you had a sense of the world that was radically different from the sense of the world just 10 years earlier. You thought you were crazy. You thought your feelings about life were so different from other people's feelings that you must be insane. And then Joan Jett came along and stood for those girls who grew up with power moms. Why? Because the power instrument on stage was the guitar, and it was well understood that that was a male-only instrument, and it was really the men who commanded the stage. Yes, you might be Grace Slick with the Jefferson Star Airplane. Yes, you might be Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company, but you were just a girl. You simply held onto the microphone and went where the guy with the guitar steered you. Now, Joan had the balls, the audacity to take that power instrument for herself and to take total possession and control of that stage, which meant that when she played to an audience of girls who had grown up with moms in power suits, that audience suddenly recognized they were not insane. They were not alone. 
They were not the only one feeling that the world should be this way. Instead, they were part of a movement. Joan Jett helped give a tongue, a voice, to a group soul that was in the process of forming and, in fact, formed in part because of her, because of her as a catalyst. And that's what all of my major stars did. In one way or the other, they gave a voice to the unspoken parts of yourself that you felt made you insane. They gave you a home. They told you you were not alone. You were part of a movement. That's what ZZ Top did for Texas. No doubt. The stories that you tell from your time working with Bob Marley are the stories that probably had the most profound impact on my soul, Howard, as I was making my way through this book. So let's start here regarding Bob Marley. How did you end up working with him initially, and what did you do to help him achieve widespread popularity in the U.S.? Well, the Bob Marley story is heartbreaking, as you know. Chris Blackwell was the founder of Island Records, and Chris Blackwell had helped create reggae as an international musical form. He had heard it. He grew up in Jamaica. His family was extremely wealthy. He grew up on the top of the hill, but he used to like to go down to Trenchtown, which was the dangerous black neighborhood, and the kids in Trenchtown were making their own form of music that was brand new, and they were getting it pressed up by local pressing plants and selling it. So Chris Blackwell put a whole suitcase full of these records, just stuffed an entire suitcase with them, flew to England, and started selling these records from the back of a Mini Cooper, and thus helped internationalize reggae music. Well, Chris Blackwell made me a part of his brain trust for 10 years, and he brought me in when he had problematic situations, and Bob Marley was in a problematic situation. Bob Marley could sell out 120,000-seat soccer stadiums anywhere in the world. Now, you have to realize 120,000-seat soccer stadium was the size of two American baseball or football stadiums put together in those days. But in the United States, he couldn't. He could sell a maximum of 30,000 tickets in New York City. And since Madison Square Garden has a capacity over the course of two shows for 36,000, that leaves a lot of empty seats and made him look weak, pathetic, bad. So Chris Blackwell asked me if I could help solve the problem. And I said, yes, I can. The problem is that Bob is an island black, and black Americans and island blacks see themselves as two radically different populations, and they despise each other. So Bob has been taken very successfully to the white college community, but he's never been taken to his natural base in the American black community. And I just happened to be the leading American black publicist in the world at the time, despite the fact that I'm not black. It's a matter of loving your audience. So I mapped out a plan to establish Bob in the black community. And Chris took me to a meeting with Percy Sutton, who was the former borough president of Manhattan and who owned the leading black radio stations in North America, and Bob Marley. And they were pondering what in the world they could do with this problem of having a show or shows for Bob in New York City when it was going to look pathetic and bad because there would be 6,000 empty seats over the course of two nights. And I said, look, why don't we do the following? There is a theater called the Beacon Theater. It holds 3,000 people. Why don't we book Bob for 10 nights? That will take care of our 30,000 tickets and something more. It will leave thousands of people unable to get tickets. And when you leave people hungry, that's when you begin to build your legend. You must leave people hungry. 
Well, everybody thought it was a brilliant solution, including Bob, who was sitting on the opposite side of the table from me. And that established our relationship. Well, for six months, we worked very hard to establish Bob in the American black community. And then I got a call. And the call said, look, Bob Marley has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Whatever you were doing is not your job anymore. Here's your job. Every morning, I'm sorry, my voice comes close to tears when I talk about this. But every morning Bob gets up, and he's in a chalet in Switzerland. Nobody's supposed to know that. He's attending an alternative doctor there. And he gets up in his second-story bedroom in the chalet, and he goes down to the kitchen to eat breakfast, and he has newspapers from all over the world spread out around his breakfast setting. And if he sees a single newspaper that says Bob Marley is dying of cancer, he goes back up to his bedroom without eating breakfast, he never turns the light on, and he spends the whole day in depression. If Bob Marley, on the other hand, goes down to breakfast and not a single paper says anything about Bob Marley dying of cancer, then Bob eats his breakfast, he goes out on the lawn in the sunshine with the 25 guys that he always carries with him wherever he goes, and they play soccer. So your job is to keep Bob Marley's cancer out of the headlines. So I did that job for the next year. Every Monday morning, coming into the office early, getting calls from Sweden, Switzerland, Italy, South America, all over the place, and Africa, and filling the people with so much valid information about what Bob Marley had been doing that they had more than enough for three stories just not telling them that Bob Marley had cancer. Now, look, the truth at any price, including the price of my life or of your life, is one of the most basic principles of my life. So I had to make a choice between being 100% truthful or saving Bob Marley's life, which would be more important to you. Saving Bob Marley's life. Yes, exactly. So no journalist has the right to be a predator and to kill Bob Marley for the sake of a headline. No journalist has that right. Well, I'd done this for a year, and then I got a call from a person that Chris Blackwell kept with Bob Marley all the time, and she said, I hate to tell you this, but Bob no longer needs you. And it was one of the most awful phone calls I've ever gotten. One of the most awful phone calls I've ever gotten, because it meant that Bob had given up and two weeks later he was dead. And Bob and I were never close. We were never close. We didn't understand each other, although I did my best to understand him. But we were close. And so a couple of years later, Virgin Records signed a new artist. And the new artist's mother said, if you're going to work with my family, we have a family publicist. You have to hire him. His name is Howard Bloom. The new artist was named Ziggy Marley. The woman making that statement was Rita Marley. I never met Rita Marley in my life, but obviously it wasn't just me who felt that Bob was a part of my body and my blood. It was Bob's family and Bob who knew that. And I was so grateful I can't explain it. What was it like being in Bob Marley's presence? You were around him on more than one occasion. What was that like for you? We didn't understand each other. Bob spoke a peculiar patois, a Jamaican patois. I had to listen very carefully. I'd studied Bob intently. The one thing I knew was this. Bob told me a story that captured something vital. He had been in a Jamaican club, 
Now, in those days, Jamaican gangs were making war on each other with guns and killing each other. And the police were like a third gang, making war with the Jamaican gangs. So Bob felt a hand touch his shoulder and tell him to get out of the club he was in. Bob walked out of the club, and within minutes, there was a raid on the club. So what was Bob trying to tell me? At least as I interpreted it, what Bob was trying to say is he had a direct connection with God. God had tapped him on the shoulder. He was a prophet of God. And who is God? God is not the God of the Old Testament. God is not the God of the Christians in the New Testament. God is Rastafari. And who is Rastafari? Haile Selassie, the leader of Ethiopia. Rastafarianism is literally a religion based on the idea that Haile Selassie was God and that someday Haile Selassie is going to come to Jamaica with a giant ship, put all of the Jamaicans who are living in Babylon, meaning living in the West, not living in Ethiopia, and take them to paradise. And where is paradise? Paradise is Ethiopia. So I understood Bob to that extent, that I was in the presence of a man who felt that he had a direct connection with God and had upon him the burden of being God's prophet. This doesn't necessarily relate to Bob Marley, although I believe you were discussing this during the book, but you wrote that there are times when making yourself look small is valuable. Generally speaking, when is it valuable to look small? It's valuable to look small when you're gaining strength and you're trying to gain enough strength to overcome the enemy. To look small means you will not be attacked. Another one of my books, there's a story of Shaka Zulu. Shaka Zulu took a lackadaisical tribe called the Zulus, and he turned them into a killing machine. And when Shaka's troops were approaching the troops of a potential enemy, he would have three men stand out abreast of each other, and the other men hide behind them in single file. And he would have his three men turn their shields to the side so that all you would see was the edge of a shield, not the full width of the army. This means other armies would see you coming if you were Shaka Zulu commanding your troops and would think, ah, they're sending this pitiful little force up against us, three guys, and their hearts would swell and they would anticipate victory over you. And then suddenly, as you got very close, the whole army standing in single file would unfold in parallel and you would see that in fact you had been outnumbered and your heart would break and what you try to do with an enemy is roll it up which means throw so much terror into its hearts that it runs away because picking off people who are running away is extremely easy and Shaka Zulu did that by making himself look small when he was big and making himself look big when he was small and Sun Tzu, the great Chinese strategist of about 200 B.C., Sun Tzu said the same thing. And Deng Xiaoping has pulled off the same thing. He has said to the Chinese, let us look small while we are gaining the strength to overtake America. And only when we get the strength to overtake America will we show ourselves as big. And that's what you see unfolding with China right now. What did you discover in a month of studying your newest client, Prince, in 1980? 
that Prince had had an imprinting point. There are certain points in life where your brain seizes on a certain kind of thing and wraps itself around that thing and then literally changes what's called its morphology, its shape, to fit that thing. And that moment had come with Prince when he was five years old. And Prince's mom had taken him to see his dad, who was a jazz musician, rehearsing at a theater in Minneapolis. And Prince had sat in the back of the theater, seen 1,500 seats, all focused on the stage, seen a spotlight on his dad at the piano, and he had seen five of what he says were the most beautiful women he'd ever seen in his life behind his dad. And from that instant on, Prince needed to make music. And what were the common elements that artist after artist after artist imprints on? Mass detention and sexuality. Kevin Cronin, Avario Speedwagon, when he was five, saw Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show, and that was his imprinting moment. There were screaming girls in the audience. You could barely hear Elvis. What were the basic elements? Massed human attention and sexuality. Kevin imprinted again 10 years later when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. Again, it was all screaming girls, and you couldn't really hear the Beatles. So what were the two key elements then? Massed emotional attention and sexuality. And those are the things that tend to get young men into music, those imprinting moments. John Cougar Mellencamp, who we talked about a little bit earlier, was inspired by the Paul Newman movie HUD. How does that film help explain a turn that Prince took in the mid-80s that illuminated and altered him going forward? Well, John Mellencamp sat me down in his living room once, and we sat on the floor, and it was the days when VCRs were new, and he showed me HUD, which had been one of his formative movies. And in HUD, HUD is a young man with a wealthy father. His father is wealthy because he's a big cattle rancher. And HUD goes into town in a great big white Cadillac convertible every day and goes to a bar and picks up a lonely housewife. And then you can imagine what he does with her. And then comes back home. One day, the feds, uh, the agricultural authorities, come to his dad and say, there's hoof and mouth disease in the neighborhood. We're going to have to destroy your entire herd. Now, if you're a rancher, your wealth is your herd. That's your 401k, period. That's all the money you've got. And if you have to destroy them without any form of compensation, you go from a rich man to a poor man overnight. And HUD did not want to be the son of a poor man and to lose his privilege of going into town in his big white Cadillac convertible every day and picking up bored housewives. So HUD starts to put together a plan to steal the cattle. And then in the middle of the plan, something hits him. It's his conscience. And it's a speech his dad has given him. You have a public responsibility. You have a responsibility to your fellow human beings. If you do not kill off your herd, other people in the neighborhood, their cattle are going to get hoof and mouth disease. Then it'll spread beyond Texas. Then it'll go nationwide. You will have been responsible for that. You cannot be responsible for a crime of that kind. And the voice of his dad rings in his head, and he calls off the plan to steal the herd. And John, when it was over, said that the message was this. First, you rebel against your father. Then you become his father. 
Well, one day, Prince was playing at Nassau Coliseum, the same place where Joe Walsh had managed to actually stay on his feet and remember his lyrics. And Prince was about halfway through the show, and he was at the point where he flung himself on the stage, laying on the stage, and went absolutely motionless. And we all thought, at first, this was just part of the act. And then we thought, oh, my God, something awful has happened. Prince may be dying. And we began to lose the energy. We began to lose that magic of being totally anonymous in an audience where nobody's looking at us. We're just totally absorbed in looking at the stage. And then a voice came from 60 feet above our heads, from the top of the ceiling. And it was the voice of God. And it began to speak to Prince. And that's when I knew that Prince was no longer rebelling against his father, that his father's voice was coming alive in him, and that Prince was becoming his father. And shortly after that, Prince became the artist formerly known as Prince and began wandering in the wilderness. Prince had had a tremendously successful movie with Purple Rain, and I had played a small part in helping save that movie. It was going to be canned by Warner Brothers, and he made a second film, under the cherry moon and when i got to watch that movie and the first form with a happy ending i thought it was terrific it wasn't a classic like purple rain but it was a wonderful fulfilling film and then i got a call you've got to be out here tomorrow we've got to show you what prince has done with the film you have to tell us what you think well prince had put an unhappy ending on the film and the film no longer worked it just simply did not work at all that was under the cherry moon Why had Prince done that? Because Prince in the film is a scamp, and he's trying to rip off a gorgeous rich woman. In the first version of the film, he ends up with a woman in the end. But Prince figured, a scamp? That's not acceptable in the eyes of God. The only thing that I can do to be godly is to kill that scamp off in the end. So in the second version of the movie, Prince dies when a motorboat blows up. And it's very unsatisfying. You've invested 90 minutes of your life into this character, and all of a sudden the character is taken away from you. It's radically unsatisfying. But Prince had to do it because the voice of God, that is the voice of his father, had come alive inside of him. So first you rebel against your father, then you become him. You also worked with Billy Joel for a couple of years in the early 80s. I've always hypothesized that Christy Brinkley had a sort of Yoko Ono effect on Billy and his music, Do you have any personal experience that gives credence to my theory? Absolutely. I don't hang around socially. I've never learned how to do that. But I realized I hadn't seen Billy in a long time. He was my client. And I wanted to get a reading. I wanted to see how he was. Billy and I decided to get together for breakfast at a restaurant out on the sidewalk in front of the Essex House Hotel. And I waited for Billy by the elevators, and he came down in the elevator from his suite, second living place for him, with a child's notebook in his hands, one of those black and white marbled notebooks that your mom buys you before you go into second grade. And we went outdoors. We got ourselves a table, and Billy explained something to me. He said, writing songs is extremely difficult for me. An idea comes to me, and I immediately realize that it's hackneyed, that it's tired, that it's old, that it's been done before, and I throw it away. And then another idea comes to me, and I realize it's hackneyed and old, and I throw it away. And I spend three months pacing in my piano room, fighting 
to get a single song. That's why I call the piano the beast with 88 teeth, he said, <laughs> because I'm fighting with it. When I was growing up, he said, we used to stand on the corner and watch all the girls go by, and we regarded girls as a different species. They simply weren't like guys. You couldn't talk to them the way you could talk to guys. So you tried to score with them so you could brag to the guys the next day, but you couldn't talk to them. You couldn't treat them as human beings. But last night, he said, I met a woman I could talk to. And we talked until two in the morning. And then I came home and I wrote 12 songs, an entire album full of songs. And that's what the notebook was. The notebook had the lyrics to all of the songs that he had written the night before in two hours. Nothing like that had ever happened to him. Well, when I heard the album, I got a little bit nauseous because I love Billy Joel. But every single one of these songs was derivative. None of them had that controlled anger or uncontrolled anger that had made Billy Joel's songs so powerful up until that point. It turned out that this woman that has so fascinated Billy that he'd been able to talk to as if she were a man was Chrissy Brinkley, of all people, the supermodel. Two months later, I got a call saying, Christy's publicist would like to get together with you. And I thought, that's terrific. Christy obviously has a brain. That's why Billy can talk to her. And I'd love to work with Christy's publicist so that we could coordinate. Well, Christy's publicist and I had lunch at a place called Hyperbole, which was on the bottom floor of the building my two-story office was in. And it was a lovely restaurant. And I tried to explain to her how you work with a rock and roll audience, that for one thing, the artist really is a team. The artist is like the hood ornament on a Mack truck. It's the Mack truck that makes the hood ornament move. You need a team, but the team has to be invisible because for the sake of being an icon, that artist has to look as if he's flying without wires. And she went back and got a piece the next day in the New York Post saying that I had demeaned the rock and roll audience with this statement. And on that basis, Christy convinced Billy to fire me. Well, there was a benefit to that. I didn't have to work on what I consider to be Billy Joel's most god-awful album to date. It was the album with Uptown Girl on it. It's sold more than any other Billy Joel album. So commercially speaking, I was wrong, but I couldn't have, with good heart, have worked with that album. But nonetheless, I loved working with Billy. He's an extremely intelligent man. He reads books. It's fun to work with Billy Joel, and I believed very powerfully in his music. I believed for years, before I ever met these two people, that in the poetry anthologies of the 21st century, the lyrics of Paul Simon and Billy Joel would figure prominently. That's how much I believed in their lyrics, and that's before I ever met them. And later I would end up working with Paul Simon, and I would end up working with Billy Joel. But yes, Billy was undone by Christie frankly, in my opinion. In 1985, people thought they were doing a lot of good with Live Aid and the song We Are the World in helping to feed starving Ethiopians. Did that actually help with famine in Africa? No, and it didn't help with famine in Africa for a very simple reason, that it took a big campaign to find out. My big campaign was I saw what was called in those days black-on-black violence going on in Central Africa. I saw two tribes who were killing each other in numbers that were outrageous. 
And I wanted to publicize that. And I tried to convince press person after press person to publicize it, to stop the murders. But what was popular at the time and what was being pushed, frankly, by the Communist Party and Moscow's puppets in the United States, the pink diaper babies. Look, I'm a liberal and I'm on the left of things, but it's true that there are a bunch of people who used to do Moscow's bidding, no matter what. And they were only allowed to talk about apartheid. They were not allowed to talk on black and black violence. The theory was that if you talked about black and black violence in Central Africa, you were contributing to the stereotype that blacks are violent. Hey, I got news for you. Apartheid is humiliating and should never exist. But death, mass murder, is the absolute end of a life. The absolute end of it. Which is worse, humiliation or death imposed by a murderous hand? Death is the more important. And I tried to make that point, and the only person who would listen to me was Bob Buccini Jr., who had founded Spin Magazine, and I had known him since he was 19 years old. When I was in the art studio, I used to visit him with my art portfolio. And Bob took me seriously, and Bob assigned a very good investigative journalist to the case. Now, we are the world, and Live Aid in England and Band Aid were all put together on the assumption that kids were starving to death by the hundreds of thousands in Ethiopia, and if we simply got together money, we could buy food for them. When the investigative journalist that Bob assigned to the case looked into things, he discovered it was not that way at all. What actually was happening was that the country, Ethiopia, you know, the paradise of Bob Marley's dreams, was run by a guy named Haile Mengistu Miriam. Haile Mengistu Miriam was a communist. Worse than that, he was a communist in the tradition of Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin wanted to kill off the ambitious peasants in his country. They were called the Kulaks. To do it, he had starved them to death. And those who remained alive, he had packed off to gulags in Siberia. Starvation for Joseph Stalin was a tool of communist organization. Haile Mengistu Miriam was using the starvation of his people to get them to go in to communes where he could control them as rigidly as a general controls people in boot camp living in barracks in the military, where the military dictates your every move. So Mengistu Miriam was using starvation to not only lure people, he had these huge Antonov cargo craft, which were supposed to carry a maximum of 50 people. And he was packing 350 or 400 people into them with rifle butts. And they were smothering to death. They were crushing each other. Babies were dying in those planes. It was very much like the trains to Auschwitz. And the money that was going to Ethiopia was not being used to feed the starving people out in the countryside where starvation was being used as a ploy to build a Marxist state. It was going to Haile Mengistu Miriam, who was using it, to buy weapons. And I brought this up with a good friend who was one of the major organizers of these events over and over again before I knew all the details and said, how do you deal with this? And she basically said, well, we have to keep our eyes shut to all of that in the hope that some of this reaches serving children. So that was the real story. Meanwhile, the two tribes that were making war with each other and killing each other off that I wanted to stop before it could become a real and even bigger problem than it was were called the Hutus and the Tutsis. 
The country was called Rwanda. And what I was trying to stop was a mass murder that later killed between 700,000 and 1.5 million people. And the press people, under orders from Moscow, basically, refused to cover it. And then guess what they did after all those people had died? Then they started to cover it. They were war profiteers, the people in the press. Look, I love free press in America. I love the fact that we have press that fact-checks what it does, rather than what we get from the current president, which is he makes it up as he goes along. There's no need to fact-check. Alternative realities. But the fact is that sometimes even the press that I love the most makes huge, huge mistakes. And the press contributed to the genocide in Rwanda, and then it profiteered off that genocide. And the people who made films and wrote books about the genocide in Rwanda won Pulitzer Prizes and got awards. For what? For profiting off of mass murder that they could have stopped. That is unacceptable. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. It's pretty sickening to really think about. Howard, going to uh, switch to, well, I don't know if I call it a lighter topic considering how this story ended, but what was your first meeting with Michael Jackson like? I was at Marlon Jackson's pool house. A pool house is a little independent building out near the pool in the backyard. And you have to realize that in places like Encino, real estate is hideously expensive. So we had big lawns in our backyards in Buffalo, New York, when I was growing up. No such thing exists in a backyard in Encino, California. It's just a little tiny strip of space, a couple of inches wide with grass around the pool, and then this building next to the pool. So the building had one big room on the first floor and another big room on the second floor. That's all it had. And the walls of the room on the first floor were lined with arcade games, which at that point nobody in the world could afford except the people who are running a boardwalk or a place in Las Vegas. But the room was lined with these extraordinary machines, and in the center was a pool table. And the brothers and I had been meeting, and we'd been discussing merchandise and the quality of tour jackets and the quality of T-shirts, and I was trying to explain to them that you guys make the best music in the world, and everything that you sell has to reflect that. So your tour jackets have to be unusual with a quality nobody's ever seen. Even your T-shirts have to be unusual with a quality nobody has ever seen. And then the screen door started to open. And somehow when I was 19 years old, remember, I grew up with lab rats and guinea pigs and didn't know human rituals. But somebody when I was 19 years old had taught me that if you walk up to somebody and you stick out your hand and you say, my name is Howard, the other person will tell you his name and put his hand in yours and shake. This is in the days before the current coronavirus. And we had to maintain social distance. So a person was coming through the door. I realized it must be Michael. I walked over. I stuck my hand out. I said, hi, my name is Howard. The first time in my life I ever did it. And look, I read thousands of articles on Michael. Every single one of them said he's a bubble baby. Every single one of them said he will cringe and withdraw when you put out your hand to him. He will avoid human contact. That wasn't true at all. Michael stuck out his hand put it in mine. We had a perfectly normal handshake. And I said, I've got a press release. I want to read it to you. I need to get your approval. So we went up the stairs to the room on the second floor. The room on the second floor was totally, utterly to the ceiling, jammed 
with keyboards and amplifiers. So Michael found one amplifier and sat down on it. I found another amplifier and sat down on it. And I read Michael the press release. And as I read Michael the press release, I don't know how to describe this. At first, he was sitting more or less up straight. And slowly, he began to slump down. And his face was filled with awe. And when I was finished, he said, did you write that? That's beautiful. Now, you know, Trey, that I had been working on my writing since the age of 12. (laughs) I'd been working on it obsessively. And as I said, that literary magazine I was kidnapped into editing won two National Academy of Poets Prizes. I took my writing very seriously, and I wanted to make it delicious, utterly delicious. Michael was the first person and the only person who ever saw the craft and the art inside a simple press release. It was astonishing. So he approved it. We went downstairs, and we stood on one side of the pool table because the art director from CBS Records had just arrived with four art portfolio, five art portfolios. And Michael and I stood next to each other. I was on Michael's left, so my right upper arm was up against his right upper arm. My right knee was just about up against his left knee. And the art director slid the first of the portfolios across the table. Now, remember, I had run an art studio. I had carried a portfolio like these portfolios, except mine was black vinyl. These were all hand-tooled leather and hand-tooled cherry wood. And Michael, standing next to me, started to turn the page so he could see the first picture. And he got to the point where there was only a square inch visible. And he went, oh, and his knees bent. And he got another three square inches into the picture, still lifting the page. And he went, oh, and his knees bent a little bit further. And he lifted the page a little bit more and could see another, maybe a quarter of the total picture. And he went, oh, and his knees buckled a little bit more. And my arm is up against his arm. My knee is up against his knee. I can feel what he is going through. This man standing next to me was having an aesthetic orgasm of a kind I had never seen before. Now, back to the first two rules of science. Yes, rule number one is the truth at any price, including the price of your life, which is the law of courage. Rule number two of science is look at things right under your nose as if you have never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look for things that everybody you know around you, and even you, take for granted, are invisible to you. See them, and then proceed from there. Michael was the second law of science the rule of awe, wonder, surprise, and curiosity. Incarnate. Flesh become flesh and blood in a way I had never seen or even imagined in my life. And that is one of the reasons that Michael is the most important person I have ever met in my life. He is the closest thing to a child of God, an angel, whatever you want to call it, a saint that I have ever seen. He is an incarnation of the second law of science. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before. That I never expected to see from any quarter whatsoever in my life. And it's back to the story of Bill Chinnick. 
once upon a time, you set a new standard, and you give it to children, and those children, as impossible as it is, will live up to it. Once upon a time, in the 1950s, it was said that it was humanly impossible, physiologically impossible, scientifically impossible, to run a mile faster than four minutes. And a guy named Roger Bannister and a medical school colleague of his dedicated themselves to proving that was untrue, and they took films of Roger Bannister's running, and they analyzed every bit of how he was using his energy in order to get rid of the moves that were wasting his energy and focus only on the moves that were using his energy to run forward. And the result was Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He did what was physiologically impossible, just like Bill Chinnick had done what was physiologically impossible. And now if you look up the four-minute mile in Wikipedia, it will tell you that every professional runner now automatically runs the four-minute mile. What had previously been physiologically possible is now something that is achieved by every major runner in the world. Michael Jackson set a standard for aesthetic appreciation. He set a standard so far beyond the normal mortal that I cannot describe it to you. And if kids read this book and come to understand what Michael Jackson achieved, and I don't mean achieved that he was striving toward it, he felt this was a gift from God because it came to him automatically. And he felt it was his obligation to his kids to give that same gift of awe, surprise, and wonder to his kids. And in fact, if people understand that new standard of astonishment that Michael Jackson set, they will find living up to it as ordinary as people find running the four-minute mile today, or as Bill Chinnick found, living up to the standard of eight Les Pauls. Former music journalist and New York Times Magazine editor Ken Emerson once said that, quote, every publicist should be like Howard Bloom. He knows how to tell a story. What's the key to a good story, Howard? The key to a good story is looking for passion points, you know, for those imprinting points, for genuine moments of turnaround, like that moment when Prince saw his father on stage with the five most beautiful women he'd ever seen behind him and go through the story in meticulous detail from beginning to end. Start at the beginning with the person that you're interviewing and then slowly, slowly work your way up from there and constantly realize that you're going to have to get these stories across to people as if they were a camera in the room. So you have to be a camera in the room. So stop to ask questions like, where were you? What did it look like? What kind of neighborhood was it? And then put together what you've got in chronological order around the passion points, the turning points in people's lives. And from that will come a story. Considering how important writing well has been for you since you were 12 years old, a story that you told earlier in this conversation, is there a most important quality to good writing? Clarity. And if you let academia get its hands on you, if you let your professors at college get their hands on you, they will explain to you how to write in a jargon that is so divorced from the normal human experience that nobody will be able to understand you. What's worse, 
the jargon will be so intense that you won't be able to understand yourself. And the result of that is you could write an entire article that has nothing to say, and you won't realize that you just said nothing, because the thicket of jargon will be so thick and, to your mind, impressive. That is not your job as a writer. Your job as a writer is to take an idea and make it so simple that anyone can understand it and to illustrate it by telling stories, because without stories, we humans do not understand new things. Howard, you've talked about what has happened to you since the late 1980s, being bedridden for 15 years and eventually coming out on the other side as someone who had reestablished yourself as a scientist. But you haven't worked in music or with rock and roll since 1988. Do you ever find yourself missing that life at all? Yes and no. I do not miss being like a fighter pilot all day long, seven days a week and for eight years without vacations. I don't miss the stress, and I don't miss the fact that I had to immerse myself in that business, and I ate, slept, and breathed that business, Trey. There are other things that I'm on this planet to do. My job is to see the big picture and show you how things fit as puzzle pieces in a big picture in ways that you've never seen before. So I'm doing what I need to do the most. What I do miss is being able to preach soul. What I do miss is to be with Ben Harper and say no to the ginger ale ads. What I miss is being with Maroon 5 and being able to say no to the ginger ale ads. What I miss is being able to help fashion the bridge that allows the soul of genuine artists like the leader of Maroon 5, like Ben Harper, to get that soul exchange in as pure a form as possible between the audience and the artist. That I miss. I think that is vitally needed in all of human society, not just the music business. I believe that capitalism has a hidden mandate, and that mandate is be messianic. Lift, upgrade, and empower your neighbors. If you lift, upgrade, and empower 100 neighbors, you get $100. If you lift, upgrade, and empower 1,000 neighbors, you get $1,000. If you lift, and upgrade, and empower 10 million people, you will get $10 million. You have to know that the obligation of what you do is to lift, empower, and upgrade. It's to care about people and to give them powers they never had before. And to the extent that you understand that, you can be a successful capitalist. Otherwise, you are an accidental capitalist. You think you're operating on the basis of greed, and you don't get to see the genuinely satisfying role that you play as a messianic capitalist delivering people, giving them secular salvation. And that's what's missing in the attitude through all of the business world and all of the capitalist world. And I wrote a whole book about it. It's called The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism. And I put my life on the line for seven years. For seven years, my agent told me I couldn't write that book, and I shouldn't write that book, so I quit my agent. I went without publishers for seven years. An author without a publisher is not an author, because that book I designed to help save Western civilization, as strange as that sounds. And saving Western civilization was a matter of the truth at any price, including the price of your life. So it was worth the sacrifice. But the basic message is that there's an underlying imperative to capitalism be messianic, save thy neighbor. 
Do you pay much attention to modern music, and if so, do any acts jump out to you as possessing the soul that you have constantly searched for? It's very tricky. I can't live without music. I can't work without music. I can't write without music. So the minute Pandora started up, I was one of their first subscribers. And in fact, I called the founder of the company and had a long conversation with him because I thought what he was doing was so remarkable. So I have Pandora running in my ears probably eight hours a day, minimum. And yes, there are some remarkable artists, absolutely astonishing artists. But you can't tell just by listening to their music, in most cases, what soul there is there. There are people like Ben Harper and Keb Moe, and there's another one in the category whose name escapes me. There are, are bands like the Eagles of Death Metal, which I think is just a terrific band, Queens of the Stone Age, which by now I suspect is a very old band. Just tons and tons. Uh, Tab Benoit, who's one of the finest blues singers I've ever heard. Beth Hart, who's the most amazing singer I've ever heard. I thought that Janis Joplin would be the most amazing singer I'd ever heard. But no, Beth Hart outdoes even Janis Joplin. Yes, there are remarkable figures, but without somebody around to tell their story, without, okay, this is going to sound egotistical, but without a Howard Bloom around to be their secular shaman, to find the soul inside of them, to keep them true to that soul the way that I kept John Mellencamp true to his, and to convey that soul to the audience, the way that even in Joan Jett's pictures, I was conveying her soul to her audience. Without somebody to do that, without somebody to know that needs to be done, with only people who talk in terms of markets and product, music is not a product. It is human soul. Markets are not markets. Those are human beings who you lift, upgrade, and empower. And without somebody to preach that in the music business, I see one promising artist after another promising artist trashed in the most important area of all, the gods inside of them, the soul, and the ability to share that soul and resonate to its frequency with hundreds of millions of other human beings. It's, to me, it's a travesty. Last question, Howard, and thank you again for the time. You've gone above and beyond for me, and uh, I really appreciate it and absolutely loved this book. Why is music so important to society? We don't know. Music is a mystery. I've been trying to crack it now for something like 40 years. I still haven't cracked it entirely. It speaks on behalf of the soul of a group. It spoke on behalf of the soul of a group for ZZ Top with Texas culture, which had felt oppressed. It spoke on behalf of the soul of a group for the gay community, which came out of the closet with disco music. It speaks on behalf of the soul of a group through Prince. It speaks on behalf of the soul of a group through Michael Jackson. And that's the first expression of that soul. And that soul is vitally important. And it is vitally important that people be able to recognize that they are not alone and insane. They are part of something bigger than themselves. And it is vitally important that we begin to see those things bigger than ourselves and devote ourselves to them. And without music, we do not march together. Without music, we don't feel our resonances together. Without music, we feel alone. Music gathers us together. I work in isolation, isolation right now because of the coronavirus. But I'm able to work because there is music in my ears, and it gives me the feeling of more than human company, 
something that goes beyond in a way that's so robust and full of soul that I can't even describe it to you. But music is like food, water, and oxygen. It is necessary to the individual human soul, and it is very necessary to the formation of group souls. And without group souls, we do not have an identity. Howard Bloom is a scientist, former publicist to some of the biggest bands and singers in music history, and an author. The book we've been talking about today is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Howard, thank you so much for the time today, and also thank you so much for this book. I thoroughly enjoyed it and hope everybody else does as well. Thank you, Trey. It's been a pleasure.